Hey guys, welcome to another podcast and a video blog. Today I'm joined with Dr. Ben Caldwell. He's the author of Saving Psychotherapy, How Therapists Can Bring the Talking Tour Back from the Brink. And I want to thank you for joining me. This is the first time we've actually met in person, though I've been following you yeah. online for a long time. Well, it's very nice to, to meet you in person. Uh, I've, I've certainly known of uh, you and Miranda's work for, for a long time. I'm, fans of, I'm a fan of yours, so, Thanks. Uh, so it's good to meet. Well, I'm going to tell everybody, the reason I reached out to Ben is for my own personal development, actually. Um, I have read his book, and I've been quite inspired, especially with events happening in Texas and just some of the stuff that Californian therapists have gone through and seeing Ben's advocacy um, has inspired me to think more deeply about what I can do. And I know that Miranda and I, we advocate from a business side. We really feel like if we can create financially stable businesses, then psychotherapy can continue to live within the communities that it serves. But I know that there's more that can be done. And and to be totally honest, in my own process, there's a part of me that got really frustrated uh, with things that were happening in California, and I just backed out. Like, I just didn't know what to do with it, and I was like, I don't want to be a part of this. And so, um, and I don't know if that was necessarily the best answer for me. At, that's where I was at the time, and now I'm looking at other things. So you guys are going to learn alongside with me as I grill Ben. <laughs> <laughs> And um, I'm hoping some of you guys will be inspired because we as therapists can all be advocates in some way. And so I'm hoping to get some ideas from you. All right. Sounds good. So tell me a little bit about why you wrote this book. What inspired it? So uh, I told the story in the book about um, I was at the Evolution of Psychotherapy conference uh, a couple of years ago in Anaheim. And I went to listen to uh, Marsha Lenahan give a presentation. And of course, Marsha, huge, huge name in the field, developed dialectical behavior therapy. Um, and her presentation was going to be actually a demonstration. And so me and, and the many other therapists who were there were all very excited about the opportunity to actually see her work. And as the presentation was getting started, there were some audio problems in the room. And this is a giant lecture hall. It could see probably a thousand people. I she was there. <laughs> you the same presentation? Yes. Oh, so you remember this. I wonder yes. how close you were sitting to, to what was happening here because this was, um, <laughs> yeah, this, this is burned into my memory. Mm. Um, so there's audio problems at the beginning. The speakers aren't working very well. And sort of down the row from where I was sitting, um, there was a therapist, just like all the rest of us there, who starts, this is such a, a little thing, but starts reaching into her purse or into some kind of like a snack bag to, to have some food. Um, and, and at first, people are looking around at her like, what? Uh, why are you making noise when we already can't hear this woman? We, we already can't hear Linehan. We all came to hear Linehan. We're all so excited about this. And you know, Marsha's on stage and she's trying to, to project as much as she can, but it's just too big of a room yeah. and you really can't hear. And this person kind of down the row keeps reaching into whatever snack bag she had with it. And, and it's that crinkling sound. And I'm not hypersensitive to this kind of thing. Um, but you know how when there's sort of like a, a loud plastic bag, <laughs> yeah. so you can't hear anything else. 
And I was annoyed with her because I couldn't hear Linehan talk. But I really quickly got fascinated with the fact that there are all these therapists, therapists, experts in behavior change, sitting around um, kind of giving this woman dirty looks or, or glaring to their friend in that way of, I can't believe what's happening here. And nobody is saying anything to this woman. <laughs> this is, it's a uh-huh. small little behavior. Something uh-huh. that would be easily changeable. And this woman is surrounded by society's experts in behavior change. Yes. And nobody is doing, can I swear on this? Is that okay? Yes. <laughs> nobody is doing jack shit about what this woman is doing that is disturbing everyone. Mm-hmm. So finally, finally, after like five minutes of this, which is an eternity when you're, when you're trying to listen to someone demonstrate a model therapy, finally, uh, someone goes over to her and, and sort of very gently says something and the woman responds you know, very appropriately and, uh, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, I didn't realize, um, it puts it away and, and does, uh, I have no beef with this woman. She just was sort of oblivious in the moment and as soon as somebody said something to her, she was fine. How long did all of us, all of us therapists, sit around her lacking the courage to say a very little thing about a very little thing to make a very little change when we are all supposed to be experts in change? And in a, in a sort of, I, I tend to think big picture about things. And so, you know, I, I'm seeing that and the people who are at the evolution conference are usually well-motivated therapists who, who are good at their craft already want to get better. And I'm thinking if, if all of us as therapists had a hard time with this tiny little change, what does that say about our field? And I started, that was really my first moment. I've done policy work for a while. I've been involved with AMFT California for um, 10 years uh, doing policy work. But it was really my first uh, experience of wanting to zoom the lens as far out as I could uh-huh. to see where are we as a field right now? Um, what's happening in our profession that, that in theory, as professionals, we have this exchange with the community around us where we get professional status. And in exchange, the community around us can expect certain things of us to abide by a code of ethics, to, um, you know, kind of share our knowledge for the benefit of the community. How are we doing? Are, are all therapists or most therapists as sort of non-courageous as most of the therapists were in those few minutes around this woman who was just kind of oblivious? Or, you know, is, was that just a, a fluke? What, what's going on in the big picture of our profession? And so I started um, kind of looking at the professional literature and was alarmed at what I found. That's what really inspired the book. What kind of response have you received from the book? Well, it's gotten um, a very good response from people who, um, people who I didn't necessarily expect to get any response from. Uh, And I'll give you a a couple of good examples. So um, Sean Davis uh, is a friend of mine, a therapist I much admire. He's uh, he's up in Sacramento, and he's one of the leaders of what we call the Common Factors Movement. Um, He read the book and and was sort of blown away and said this was really educational for me. Um, It it reminds me in some very good ways of like a Malcolm Gladwell book, which Mm -hmm. I've 
I don't think I'm anywhere near that parallel. But <laughs> hey, take the compliment. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I really appreciated his feedback. The other uh, reviews it's gotten on Amazon so far have been just spectacular, glowing reviews. Um, and when I've had the chance to sit and talk with people about what's in the book, um, generally they've been um, very supportive and, and very, uh, and I hope your listeners can hear this the right way. Um, sort of a, a mix of complimentary, like sort of thank you for writing this, this has been helpful for me. Also alarmed. Yeah. Because I think a lot of what's in the book, especially at the beginning about kind of where we are as a field right now, is information that people do not learn in graduate school. Correct. Uh, your, your program is going to be reluctant to tell you that from, uh, you know, 19, what it, from about 2000, I'm going to get my dates wrong now, from about 98 to 2007, I think it was, in that 10-year span, um, that total U.S. spending on psychotherapy, all sources, public and private, so you're including insurance, you're including self-pay, you're including uh, public mental health, all sources put together, total U.S. spending on psychotherapy dropped by a third, dropped by billions of dollars in inflation-adjusted money. That is really, really alarming for our profession. Mm-hmm. And I didn't learn that in graduate school. And I bet a lot of other people didn't either. Right. Yeah. What do you, I mean, my thought about the book, yeah, is that it's very educational, but I think it's also what I like is how, and I've seen you interact in online forums as well, that you're very kind, but you're also very not, no nonsense or direct, you know, sort of like, Hey, you know, this is what it is. What are you going to do about it? You know, we can sit here and bitch and moan about things. Or, you know, we can sit like that, those people in the conference rolling their eyes, lady with the plastic bag. Or we yeah. can turn around and say, hey, do you mind putting that away? Or, hey, what can I do about this, you know, to make things better? Well, and that's the thing. I, I think that a lot of us are, and, and sometimes for a good reason. Uh, there's, It's not my intention to sort of dispersions here, but I think a lot of therapists are um, sort of understandably in a position where we complain about the state of things without really getting involved in changing them. Mm-hmm. We actually have an awful lot of power to make systemic change. Um, and it's, it's not, there's no particular level of therapist that this is more common among. This is as true with seasoned professionals, people who are very powerful as it is among sort of brand new therapists. Um, I gave a presentation uh, probably about a year ago to the Los Angeles MFT Consortium, which is this gathering of um, educators and agency supervisors um, and professional associations. You know, Camps and AMC California always send people there. Uh, And this is a group that's been around for some, I think, 30 years now. Mm -hmm. An awful lot of at least sort of institutional power in that room. Um, and they've been involved in things like um, the the state and county stipend um, disbursement for for MFTs. And I think, gosh, if if these people got together as as the consortium mm-hmm. and pushed for blank policy change, whatever they thought needed to be different, there is so much influence here. They could get a lot done, and they often don't. Um, and there's as much um, propensity in, in that environment for 
let's complain without doing anything about it, as there is among any other therapists. And like I said, my intention here is not blaming. It's number one, we're all really busy um, with the responsibilities that that we have. Trying to make a living in the field is not necessarily an easy thing at any level. Um, Number two, we don't necessarily recognize the influence that we could have um, if we uh, made an effort at it. Um, And we also often get this feeling of sort of helplessness that, well, you know, you can't really change the rules of the state of California. Mm -hmm. Well, bullshit. I've done it. And and you can, too. There's nothing I I want. If nothing else, I want people to know that, um, like, I've done this advocacy work for a long time. When I started, I didn't know shit about shit. Um, This was uh, something that I had an interest in, that I had a passion for but I had no clue what I was doing. All I had to do was show up and care. And if you show up and you care and you you sort of learn as you go, you uh, gather data, you learn how the the wheels turn. um, You can get an awful lot done. I I have no training in advocacy. You don't need to either. Yeah. I mean, you have your own private practice, right? I do. Can I ask how what you're learning in the policy side and in the the bigger picture side, what has that changed about how you do your private practice? Well, that's a great question. Um, so one of the things that I, I sort of learned on the policy side that I've, um, I'm actually presenting at the AMFT conference here coming up in, in a little more than a month um, one of the things that, that my group is presenting on at the conference is uh, this question of professional values. And are MFTs sort of fundamentally different from any other mental health professions in terms of what we value? One of the most difficult policy questions that I was involved with or that I've been involved with in my work has been when professional counselors wanted licensure in California. Mm-hmm. I recognize we're on a long road right now. I promise we're going to get to the place you want to be. It's fascinating. I'm, I'm listening. <laughs> so counselors wanted licensure in California. And this was going to be the last state for counselors to get licensure around the country. Mm-hmm. And I was involved in negotiation on the AMFT side. And the stance that, that we took sort of throughout that process, which was over a period of years, uh, because I introduced some bills that didn't get very far. And then each year they kind of got a little bit farther. Um, but over that time, AMFT California we never took a position of being opposed to counselors being licensed in California. There's, there's no point in sort of just a turf war for a turf war's sake. Mm-hmm. But we did take this stance that the professions are meaningfully different. That we have, and this is kind of policy speak, but we have a different history, a different skill set, and a different body of knowledge from which we work. And that if counselors were going to come into California, that license needed to honor the difference between the professions or else there's no point in having a separate license. Right. Of course. So um, that was a negotiation that was very difficult, took a long time, was ultimately successful. And now we work side by side with uh, CalPIC, the LPCC group, in, in policy discussions. We get along really, really well. I think part of the reason we get along so well now is because of that protracted period of negotiation where it wasn't just, this is what we need. It's also, this is why we want this this way, because it's, it's recognizing this difference. Um, take that and sort of move it over a little bit. The idea that there's a meaningful difference that needs to be recognized and honored legislatively, or else why have a different license? Well, 
take it within a particular profession, whether it's uh, counseling or family therapy or psychology or clinical social work or anything else for that matter. And for me in private practice, as an individual practitioner, I can do um, sort of the thing that a lot of therapists do, which is I can market myself as an MFT. I work with individuals, couples, families, and groups. Um, I help people journey on the road to change. I can use whatever flowery language along that line. Don't get me started. Okay. That's one of my favorite things to talk about. I'll swear a lot more in that kind of um, I can use whatever language to describe my process, but I might sort of advertise myself as wanting to be all things to all people. Well, if I do that, how on earth does a prospective client see me as being any different from the therapist down the street? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're not going to come to me for me. They're not going to come to me because, oh, well, Ben's flowery language about change is better than this other therapist's flowery language about change. They're going to decide based on things like cost and location and all that stuff. And that's fine. It's a perfectly rational way to choose a therapist. But if I think that I'm good, if I think that I have something unique to offer, I need to put that out in the world. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the professions in mental health have sort of homogenized in, in many ways and in many good ways. It's good that we have some, some cross-pollination. But for a lot of consumers now, they don't know the difference between an LCSW and an LMFT and an LPCC and a psychologist. They don't understand um, how the treatment might look different and actually with pretty good reason because the treatment might not look that different. Right. Well, that's the policy level. And on an individual practice level, what that has taught me is highlight what makes you different. Mm -hmm. I like what makes you, um, frankly, worth paying more money for Mm -hmm. than somebody might pay to the therapist down the street. Right. So now I highlight that I do emotionally focused therapy. Okay, great. There are a lot of therapists who do EFT, Sue Johnson's model, and my specialty clinically is in working with couples. So EFT narrows my my range a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, I talk on my site about doing short-term therapy for couples in distress. Mm-hmm. And you know, what I've tried to instill in my interns for years and years and years is don't say, I will take your hand as we journey along the footpath toward being different. That makes me want to vomit. And clients don't know what to expect out of that. Right. Say, I do blank thing for blank people. Mm-hmm. That makes you different from the therapist down the hall or down the street or you know, elsewhere in the community. And you will get clients that way because when people are looking for a therapist, they want to know, can you solve my problem? Right. If the answer is yes, then great. If the answer is no, or if the answer is unclear, they'll move on. LPCCs, same way. State of California wants to know, can you solve our problem? And does it require a new license for us to do that? Well, in California, we have a shortage of mental health care providers. Now, that statement in and of itself could steer into a whole other discussion because it's, there's mixed truth to that, but sort of on an overall broad level, we have a lot of people in California who aren't getting their mental health needs met. Counselors come in, they say, we can meet this need in a way that is a bit different from what MFTs and social workers and psychologists do, and we need a license to do it. Great. Do your thing. How is it different? Because if it's not different, we don't need you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think uh, this is why I tell people have, look for their own therapist. 
yeah. uh, just go on psychology today and you'll see like 30 profiles saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you need to speak to how you work and how it's different and what kind of changes that you want to help them with such as, yeah. you know, have improved, you know, sex life in your marriage or, you know, whatever those outcomes are that you're trying to work on, you need to talk mm-hmm. about them. And, Of course, we connect on the pain first and then move into what makes us different. And that's that blue ocean mentality we teach in our boot camp too, you know, of like, there's a ton of therapists, but how are you doing it that's different and that um, puts you in an area where you're on your own and unique and there's just no contest, so to speak, you know? Yeah, you you want to be able to highlight the things about you that are are different. Mm -hmm. And... And this is, and you want to be concrete in doing that. It's quite similar on a larger policy level, mm-hmm. where policymakers who are generally not therapists themselves, they want to know: Do you have a clear and specific solution for their problem? Mm-hmm. Now, it may not be an easy solution, but if you can convince them that it is a worthwhile solution, then they'll typically get on board. Mm-hmm. I mean, on, on a policy level, one of the things I, I can say with some um, admiration and, and respect for the people I've gotten to, to know in Sacramento, there are an awful lot of state legislators where I worked with them for months or even years and, and um, you know, got to know some of their staff members pretty well. And through all that time, never knew their party affiliation. Mm-hmm. This is actually a great thing about uh, about state legislators is that Generally speaking, they they put community, they put the the well being of their constituents above party, mm-hmm. and they are often willing to go against party leadership um, if it's a, a vote for something that is important to the people that they represent. Yeah, uh, I think that's that's something I've actually really liked about doing this work. That's encouraging to hear. So yeah. most of the people that are listening are considering private practice or in their private practice, and as you know. That's a full-time gig a lot of the time. Um, And so you're working, seeing your clients, doing your marketing and your business. What does advocacy look like for a person that's in their private practice who may not have a lot of time or doesn't even know what, where to start? What is that? Can you give some ideas around how we can advocate for our profession. And, and I think to me, that's like legacy making in a mm-hmm. sense. That's what I would call that kind of work. You know, you're not just, you're, you're leaving an, an imprint on not just the people that you directly work with, but also for future generations in our field. I would want to appeal to people who not only have that mindset of legacy making, but also frankly, to people who are not so charitable who are very interested in their own practice doing well and um, maybe care about the, the larger profession, the larger world around them, but for understandable reasons, can't make a huge priority out of that. Yeah. So if you're interested in legacy making, that's great. You might be able to do even more. If you are not interested in legacy making, this still matters. And the best example I can give is what we were just talking about. Um, you know, the, the idea that you need to demonstrate what makes you different mm-hmm. from therapists down the hall or, or down the street from you. you know, that is advocating for yourself. 
that is also to a degree advocating for your profession if you're able to say, Mm -hmm. this is what I do as an MFT or as an LCSW or as an LPCC or as a psychologist that people who have other letters after their name don't do, mm-hmm. or at least are less likely to do. Mm-hmm. So as an MFT, I work and think systemically. Right. Fantastic. Most consumers don't know what that means. Mm-hmm. So if I can spell out for them, this is what it means to, to work relationally, to really work with a couple. It's not, I'm not working with two individuals in a room. My focus, my client is your relationship. And that is something that overwhelmingly the majority of other mental health professionals with different titles won't do. Now, some of them will. We don't have an exclusive right to systemic thought. Right. But by and large, uh, most of them won't. Most of them will think differently. And I can talk about kind of the different ways in which the, the professions tend to think about stuff. So that's, I think that's the first part is um, just very, getting very clear on who you are as a professional, what you do as a professional, what makes that special and unique, and why clients should pay more money to come see you mm-hmm. than they would to see somebody else in the community. Um, some of the other things that, that you can do that are sort of small but that are helpful to the profession and also self-serving, mm-hmm. um, you can do things like calling your congressperson and representative when there's an action alert from uh, CAMP or AMFT or APA or CALPIC or whomever. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of us uh, who have been involved in trying to get counselors and MFTs into Medicare for years, um, we, it's easy to lament the fact that a lot of California lawmakers have not gotten involved in that struggle, even though um, there's been a lot of effort among the associations. Well, for the common therapist, I think there's this thought, well, I, I wouldn't work with Medicare patients anyway. Right. So what good does that do me if the, if the profession can use Medicare dollars? Great, but that doesn't actually help me, so I'm not going to give a lot of time to it. I think what people aren't aware of there is that Medicare is a bellwether program. So if MFTs and counselors become Medicare eligible, there is sort of a domino effect with other uh, prof- other government programs, other settings, automatically recognizing MFTs and counselors with MFTs and counselors thus being much more employable, much more in demand. That has a positive effect on salaries. That has a positive effect actually on all of us to where even if you never see a Medicare patient in your career, it can still mean more money in your pocket if we get into Medicare. Right. So I will admit I was one of those people that was like, why are we? And then one time I read some thread where you explained it and I was like, oh, you know, it's not like, to be honest, this is not something, this is not a mindset we were given in school and having worked in government (laughs) and having a bad taste in my mouth about all of it, I think in a way of just like, you know, there's all these things you have to go through to make something happen. And I, and I think a lot of it is we just don't understand the impact even on ourselves personally. So I think taking some time to ask questions if you don't understand is very valuable. Um, following some of the stuff you write, Ben, has been really helpful for me because well, thank you. I was one of those people who was like, this Medicare thing is, I don't, I don't get it. And then um, I had a friend who like wanted 
you know, she was limited with certain kinds of jobs she could apply for. She really wanted to work in the VA and all these kinds mm-hmm. of things. And they were like, we don't have a position because you're not Medicare eligible. You know, so. Yeah, well, the, the VA is a, is a whole other animal. I mean, we legislatively, we've been, as MFTs, been able to be hired into the VA for uh, several years now. They have a job description that's specific for MFTs, but it has been the case for quite a long time that that job description was limited only to people who had a co-amped accredited degree, which mm-hmm. is not most therapists, not most MFTs in California. Right. So um, even though we've got about half the MFTs in the country by licensure, Mm -hmm. Um, very few California MFTs were actually able to be hired into the VA. Yeah. Credit to CAMFT here. They've done some amazing work on this issue over the past year. um, And it seems like that is now changing. So that's wonderful. And they've done really, really well with it. Um, But that's another example where even if you personally aren't going to go work for the VA, Mm -hmm. the standing of the profession being elevated, more MFTs being hired into more positions has a positive effect on uh, you know, all of us for salaries because let's say there are, there are about 30,000 licensed MFTs in California. And let's say that 500 of them, not a huge amount, but let's say 500 of them get hired into the VA. Mm-hmm. Well, now there are 500 fewer MFTs to fill the positions that need to be filled by MFTs in the mental health world. Mm-hmm. what do employers do when they need to fill positions and they're not getting enough applicants? They raise the salary. Yeah. I mean, it's not, uh, there's more complication to it than sure, that. There's, but I, I think, that, but I think demand helps all of us. Yeah. And I, I see now more of the connection there than ever. And so you're talking about in terms of owning our own uniqueness and speaking to what sets us apart, um, calling our, congressperson based, you know, when we get alerts or things like that. Um, and you had mentioned also in your book about like being a supervisor. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because sure. I will say every state is different about supervision, <laughs> okay? yes. but still uh, I think it's a good thing to talk about. Yeah. So the rules about kind of when you can supervise, what qualifications you need, all that stuff, that's that's different from state to state. That's an important thing for people to be aware of. If you are eligible to supervise in your state and you're, you're in private practice, um, it's absolutely worth doing from both a charitable perspective and that you are ushering new people into the profession and also from a selfish perspective in that it's one of the, the few ways that we can start to solve this problem that is inherent to mental health work, that there are only so many hours in the day. Mm-hmm. And so if your practice is all that you are doing, you're going to have a cap on how much you can earn. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, there's basically two ways you can raise your income. You can either raise your fees or work more hours. And each of those has a sort of a built-in cap to it. You can't raise your fee beyond what the market will support. And you can't work more hours than there are in a day, Mm -hmm. uh, especially if you've got other obligations, family, and that kind of thing. So if you are supervising, you can make some money off of your supervisees. Now, that said, supervision is not lucrative, um, at least for most people. You can make some money off of it. It doesn't tend to be a way that you're going to, you know, afford that multi-million dollar house up in the Hollywood Hills. Um, but you can make a little bit of money from it. And that's, that's a helpful, good thing. We also need more good supervisors. It is a problem 
throughout the mental health professions, from, from you know, psychology on down, um, that we don't have enough good places to train the next generation of therapists. And what winds up happening is that we actually lose people out of the field, not because they're bad therapists, but because they can't afford to hang in long enough to get the training that they need to make it through to licensure. Uh, Sean O'Connor at the BBS did a study uh, a few years ago looking at sort of attrition between graduation and license exams. And he found that about a third of the people who initially register as uh, social work associates or MFT interns never even get to the exams. And some of that's actually what we would call good attrition. Some of that is people who, you know, go on and get a doctorate in psychology and they license that. Some of those people who move out of state. Some of those people who, um, you know, decide that the profession is not for them, which actually is just fine. We have no problem with that kind of attrition. But a pretty big chunk of it seems to be people who are skilled as therapists, who want to be therapists, and who can't make it through that stage because it takes too long and costs too much. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you can really help sort of the quality of the workforce by supervising, by giving an opportunity for people to get the training they need to enter into this profession. And you have a lot of influence as a supervisor. So it's sort of easy to build your name and your reputation in the, the mental health world by supervising well. One of the things also um, that comes up a lot, and I'd love to hear your opinion, because I kind of, I'm reformulating mine. <laughs> in terms of, um, we talk about budgeting in private practice for joining associations, mm-hmm. and there's always a question of which association to join. Do I join my local area? Do I join my state? Do I join my uh national <laughs> association do i do something different like aca versus amft what is your thoughts about that so i'm going to start by <laughs> being a lot more negative than i'm going to be at the end okay, okay. thanks for the heads up <laughs> i want to put this in context to say that the punchline the end of the story is absolutely join your professional associations join as many of them as you can reasonably afford Okay. Now, that said, I think the associations over time have um, done a, a, a gradually less good job mm-hmm. of what I talked about early in this interview as sort of our exchange with the community, that we are given professional standing um, in exchange for the trust it takes to work with vulnerable people alone, um, and in exchange for sort of this expectation from the community that, that we as a professional group will speak with one voice to the people in the community who need our, our help and our knowledge and that we will share that knowledge to the degree that we are able. Um, I think we haven't done a very good job of being public-facing in that way. Um, and I, I look at, um, for example, after the, the nightclub shooting in Orlando, mm-hmm. most of the professional associations um, put out a statement saying, you know, our, our thoughts are with the victims. We, we stand with the victims and their families, you know, credit to the first responders who came in and, and um, took care of the situation as, as well as they could uh, very courageously. Um, but also that this is a, a terrorist attack against an LGBT population that is vulnerable enough already. 
fine and good, good statements, not really helpful. Right. In the sense that we're not providing resources um, to say, you know, here's how you can talk to your kids about the Orlando shooting. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you identify as LGBT and, and you've experienced some sort of secondary trauma from this, here's what you can do about that. Here's how to, to sort of minimize the risk of long-term harm from that kind of thing. Um, we, for the larger professions as a whole, professional associations, have, have gotten in the habit, and I, I say we here because I'm actively involved in, in AMFT California, I'm a member of ACA, um, and I think that we have fallen short in this area. I think that we have we've gotten more invested in what I think of as an older mindset of providing dollar value, of trying to convince potential members, if you pay $250 a year, here's how you're going to get your $250 worth. We try to do this this value equation in the sense that you're going to get your journal, you're going to get your magazine, you're going to get a discount on the annual conference, you're going to get um, you know, whatever access to, to whatever other articles and things um, as a way of saying sort of this $250 or whatever, it's going to be a bargain. You're going to find that it's a good value. And overwhelmingly, the therapists that I know that's not how they make the decision about whether to be a member of their professional association. And some of this is sort of more of a uh, millennial mindset. I think this, this mindset is, is stronger, and this is a very good thing, stronger among millennials than, than it might be among more seasoned therapists. But I see it among more seasoned therapists too, where part of the reason why we all got into this field in the first place is because we have a strong sense of mission. Mm-hmm. And, we want to know that our, our membership dues are going to a mission that is making a difference. That, that my personal presence here, my writing that check every year, makes a measurable difference in us as a field being able to do good work for the communities that we serve. Mm-hmm. If I believe that to be true, I don't give a fuck if it's $200 or $2,000. I'm paying it. Mm-hmm. And if I don't believe that to be true... If it's $5, I'm not. I want to be part of a meaningful, uh, purposeful group that is getting things done. And with professional associations, we as members don't always see that. Uh, Because so much of what we see from the associations trying to convince us to join isn't look at all that we are doing for the community. It's you're going to get the magazine and the journal, and $100 off the conference. Mm -hmm. All that said, the associations actually do get a lot done. Uh, I've been able to see enough sort of behind the curtain now in my advocacy work Mm -hmm. just how much we do from uh, working with licensing boards, even advocating for individual people to licensing boards when, when something falls through the cracks, all the way up to at the, at the federal level, uh, filing amicus briefs to the Supreme Court when the mental health groups have something to say about a case that's in front of the Supreme Court. I think about you know, what we did in California with SB 1172 a few years ago, the, the first in the nation ban on reparative therapy for minors that has now been replicated in a, in a bunch of other states, often using California's language. Mm-hmm. We do a lot of very good, very impactful work. And that's why I now say 
I got no problem paying these membership dues, even if they were a lot higher. I like what we do, but the associations don't always either do what's needed, sometimes because there's not a great communication that would allow that to happen, um, and also they don't necessarily communicate that well about what they are meaningfully accomplishing. Mm -hmm. So join your professional association to fix that. Join your professional association to say, listen, I have given you my $250 for the year. Here's what you need to be doing with that money. And if you don't have enough staff or if you don't have enough volunteers, I will help. Because what I care about is these things getting done. I care about having a sense of, of mission and purpose that is being carried out by my profession. I want the letters LMFT to mean something. I want my membership in AMFT to mean something. I want my professional group to be a courageous group of mental health professionals that, yes, is willing to take a stand on gun violence or is willing to take a stand on same-sex marriage because we actually have enough data from the research literature to say confidently, this is the right position. Mm-hmm. That's Sorry, the I, I, I get, no, I, it's the first time I've ever heard it explained that way. Because it was always, you just join. Why? Because that's what you do. Yeah. Well, my clients don't care. Like, no, it doesn't mean anything. And um, I've had my own process trying to figure out, like, do I want to be, a, there are some associations I was like, I, outside of just MFT or LPC, you know, like, I can't abide by, like, what they believe or what they stand for. Um, Yeah. So then I couldn't, I didn't. And I think too, like this is why I'm reaching out to you because I'm learning so much more about what's really happening because I don't know that stuff. Like I would never have known that. So I'm hoping this encourages anyone listening (laughs) uh, and gives you some ideas about what you can be doing in this work and why it's important. Um, Share a little bit about how you help therapists, because I know you have lots of trainings and you have your book. What else? Uh, So, yeah, I've, I think you can probably tell already, a lot of what I do in this field has has been born from frustration. (laughs) Uh, And that's actually, it's not the worst place to start from. No. As as long as it motivates you to actually act. Yeah. Um, So I taught... Uh, I still teach law and ethics, but I, I taught for a long time at Alliance International University. Um, and I now teach for CSUN and for the Wright Institute up in, in Berkeley. Um, and in that time teaching law and ethics, I got really frustrated about how we were spending so much class time on all these nuances of California law that I just had to sort of talk at students and say, here are the thousand California specific rules uh, that you need to know. And we weren't actually having the kind of deeper discussions about ethical decision-making and ethical behavior that really, that I really want to have. I want to have those conversations. I, I want to be able to talk about things like if somebody of otherwise sound mind wants to commit suicide, like let's talk about how and when and whether we intervene in that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the kind of conversation I want to have. I don't want to have a conversation that's, that's sort of arcane about here are the, the nine different categories of hours that you need for MFT licensure in California. So I wrote a textbook. I wrote Basics of California Law for LMFTs, LPCCs, and LCSWs. That's on its third edition now. The fourth edition is going to come out um, around January. Um, 
I also have a couple of uh, prep books for California MFTs who are getting ready for the law and ethics exam. Yay. <laughs> well, it's called preparing for the California MFT law and ethics exam. It's a little blue book. Um, it is, it's thin. It's like 126 pages because the scope of knowledge that you're being tested on is not all that expansive. I, I had a couple of very nice emails from people who bought that book and said, are you sure this isn't? <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. I said, no, actually chill out. You don't need to, to like supplement this with 12 other things. Right. Um, I mean, study in the way that works best for you. And there's, there's great test prep programs out there by all means. Um, but there's, there's that. And then I've got a book of uh, practice tests for the California MFC uh, law and ethics exam. Um, all of which are, uh, if you don't mind a little plug here, no, all of which go for are it. on uh, bencaldwell.com or on Amazon. Cool. And then you're speaking at AMFT. A -A -A -A. I always feel like AAMFT. -A 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do that too. It's okay. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm speaking at the AAMFT conference in uh, Indianapolis in September. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm doing the networking luncheon there where we're going to be talking about the saving psychotherapy book and uh, you know, a lot of the data that you and I talked about um, I'll be sharing there as well and kind of talking about what therapists can do on an individual level. Um, you know, I have talked about some of those things, but there's, there's a lot more yes. there as well. And so I'll talk about what therapists can do on an individual level to improve their own practices while also helping the, the profession at large. Um, and then I have a separate presentation that's a workshop at AMFT uh, where we're talking about uh, what does actually make MFTs uh, different than the other professions. And we're going to talk about, you know, how do we fix the sort of training and, and educational process that right now is probably too long and too expensive and, and not consistent enough between training programs. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's this workshop that we're calling a hackathon that I'm really excited about that I think is actually going to be a lot of fun. Uh, it's me, Bill Northey, uh, and Diane Gayhart who are, you know, they're a lot smarter than I am. So don't worry about the fact that I'm there. Uh, those two will be running a lot of the show and it's, it'll be fantastic. That's great. Well, then thank you. Personally, thank you for all you've done for MFTs, especially in our state. And um, thank you for teaching me and being willing to. I appreciate it. I've learned a lot. And I'm excited for other people to hear from you and learn from you, too. Well, thank you so much. This has been a pleasure, Kelly. This is, I, I really appreciate being here. So I'm going to um, put the link down for your site. And if you guys are going to the conference, check them out. And if you've got questions, post in the comments below and we'll answer them. All right. Have a great day, guys.